that's that's how I went for it. Didn't have any real winter backpacking experience. Just went out in Colorado a couple weekends when it was snowing and 10 degrees or snow or so and camped in the snow just to figure out my gear and how even walking on snow worked. And uh, then I started the Appalachian Trail. Uh, week two got dumped on by a huge storm in the Smokies where it snowed three feet in some places and it dropped to below zero, well below zero. And that was, so week two was the moment I was wondering what I got myself into. the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, and this is the podcast where I talk to experienced through hikers about their adventures on the trail and strategies for successfully completing a through hike. Today's guest is legend, known off-trail as Jeff Garmeyer. He took a break from college in 2011 to hike the PCT and figure out his life with gear that his family would bring on weekend hikes, a 50-pound pack, and quite impressive list of just-in-case gear redundancies on his back, he was off to great places. Fast forward, he has since completed the calendar year Triple Crown and the Great Western Loop, as well as fastest known times on a number of trails. In this episode, he shares the lessons he's learned, as well as a few of the misadventures. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com, where you can also find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Legend. Looking at all of the things you've done, I I am amazed. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but but I have to I have to expect that when you first started out, what when was your first trail? Pacific Crest Trail in 2011 is just a way to take a break in the middle of college and decide what I really wanted to do. So did traditional through hikes started out with the 55 pound pack and <laughs> really figured it out as I went, had an external frame pack too as well. So, so basically that first, that first hike was just, was sort of like an escape from college. I needed a break from college. I think just needed to reset life essentially. So that's, that's what I went for. <laughs> had you, I think it may be obvious based on your pack and so forth, but had you done anything like that before? Short, like two or three day trips growing up, but I'd never done anything more than probably 10 miles would have been the longest true backpacking trip of my life. So it was a very different type of hiking and I learned pretty quick. Yeah. Why? How did, of all of the things that you could choose, how did you end up on the Pacific Crest Trail? In um high school we as a family we were on a hike and somewhere in Oregon and we met two Pacific Crest Trail hikers uh. and they it stuck in my mind and then one of them got sick and she actually stayed at our house for about a week and so just had this exposure to the PCT and just it was always there and then hit this kind of rut I would worked pretty close to full time while going to school for a year and wanted to take a break and just spur of the moment decided the PCT was what I was going to do. 
So how much, so from the point in time that you decided to stepping foot on the trail, what, how much time was there? I would say. So I decided probably late March or April and then was hiking in mid-May. Oh, wow. Okay. And did you have to basically kind of create your, your gear from scratch in terms of, well, I guess maybe not the pack, but everything else kind of pulling it all together? Took what we always took on weekend trips, which as people will know, was not really, it's not really a good way to go about a through hike (laughs) just because we would take a rubber raft and stuff. I didn't take that on my through hike, (laughs) but my parents basically said that I could take anything that we had upstairs in our backpacking gear bin, I guess. And Mm -hmm. so I just threw together everything I thought I needed. And it was definitely way too much, especially on the clothing side but it was a good start and it, it got me to the, the terminus and I hiked basically the first 700 miles to Kennedy Meadows with about 50 pounds on my back. And then from there, my pack actually broke the frame, the external frame pack, the frame broke because I was carrying too much weight. So I found a hiker or um, an old pack in the hiker box and sewed it up with dental floss and carried that <laughs> through the Sierras. And then another hiker heard about all my issues with packs and was kind enough to mail out an old one that he had. And so I carried that for the rest of the Pacific Crest Trail and actually for the duration of my Pacific Northwest Trail hike three years later too. So just slowly got, I mean, I was by no means ultra light or even light, but slowly Mm -hmm. cut down my pack weight little by little. What were some of the crazy things that you were carrying in that first 700 miles? Um, Good question. A lot of clothing, probably like three changes of clothes, Okay. Uh, clothing that I never even wore. I had a small thermometer. I might've had maps for the entire trail, which is pretty useless, but this was before <laughs> gut hooks and stuff. Right. But I didn't need, I didn't need 2,600 miles yeah. worth. Yeah. What else? I had, a Steri pin for treating water and I believe a water filter. I, hmm, man, so many items. Uh, what were you going to do with the thermometer? I I think I just thought <laughs> it, it wasn't that big, but looking back, it wasn't even accurate either because if the sun beat on it, it would be like, show it's like 130 when it's really not. So I have no idea what I was doing with that. I had a, a solar panel, like a little solar panel for the, uh, to put on the back of my pack and a battery that I would charge up with that, which now you don't really need both of those. Mm-hmm. Just so many, I think duplicates of nearly every item is probably the biggest thing. So basically like you had the the primary and then you had the, if if the primary gets hurt or disabled, then I can go back to this. Oh, I had Crocs too, because obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. You'd need Crocs. (laughs) I was going to say, those are, those are kind of favorite camp shoes by a lot of people. I bring decently, well, I guess average camp shoes, Crocs are the way to go, but I was never wearing them. So they were just hanging off my pack, but it was, it's a good look in most of the old photos. It's a good look. (laughs) And then so you get to Kennedy Meadows and you switch out packs and you get into the Sierras and did you have 
a bear canister and an ice axe and micro spikes and that kind of stuff? Or did you have to pick those things up or get those things sent to you when you were, I should, I shouldn't even say get sent to you. Get, did you have to purchase them when you got to Kennedy Meadows? At the bear can before starting the trip, I uh, did a little bit of research. So I bought one, but it was the small one. So like barely any of my food fit in it, but I did have a bear can and I didn't take an ice axe. And I had, I think I want, I just said to my parents, if I could get an early birthday present of uh, like Cthulhu micro spikes or something, I just had them buy them and send those to Kennedy Meadows. And so that's what I went with. And this was 2011, which was a comparable year to, um, I guess, all the recent heavy snow years too. That might even still be the record year, but just had no idea what I was dealing with, no ice axe and just went through with a group of people and learned as we went. And every night, so I'm going through with a pack out of the hiker box sewn together with uh-huh. dental floss. Every right. night I would have to sit sit down and sew it back up because <laughs> the hip belt would rip out every single night. <laughs> so you had a handy supply of dental floss at that point. And I quit flossing just to ration it for sewing up things. <laughs> oh my gosh. What were you expecting when you set out on the trail that first year? I was just expecting an adventure. I had no idea what I was doing or getting into. I just really like doing things that are kind of spur of the moment and just go for it. So I started out and just had the goal to hike the whole thing, but didn't really think about that big goal. I was just going to hike the PCT and that's where the goal started and ended. And who knew if I was going to finish, who knew if I wasn't, I'm pretty hard headed. So I figured I'd probably make it, but it was, just I flew down there friend picked me up dropped me off at the terminus touched it and just started walking with no expectations or anything and I didn't quite make it to uh Lake Morena that first day and I just remember being in my tent and hearing all the just ambient sounds of wildlife and things out there and being pretty terrified but stuck with it and slowly came to love the lifestyle apparently it's, it's, it's taken your, off from there. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's become sort of your life, it feels like. It's funny thinking back. I remember, I think it was four days in, I'd gone 78 miles, and my goal was to do try to push 20 miles a day, even with a heavy pack. And it's just a different world ago where that felt like it was the hardest thing in the world and that I was dying every day. And I think I would round up to the nearest like uh, even number for my mileage because I was writing a daily blog back then too. So I'd be like, if I got to mile 78, it'd be like 80 miles in and stuff (laughs) like that. (laughs) But yeah, it was, it was just something so out of my comfort zone, but I knew that's what I wanted and needed. So I went for it, no expectations, started and really just kind of integrated easily with the through hiking community at that time and just had a great time and somehow just finished at the end. But that whole trip was more about just doing it and it was cool to finish, but it was more about the memories in the Sierra and hiking and all the people that I met along the way. Did you end up hiking the trailer or most of the trail with a group of people or were you still kind of solo and you'd kind of float between groups and that kind of thing? The trail family for 
about the first half of the trail. And then I went ahead and went a little faster because the whole, so I took spring term off of college at Oregon state and I was planning to get back by late September when the fall term started. So that was my whole goal. And once I found my hiking legs and stuff, I saw it was possible. So about midway through, I pushed ahead and went a little faster just to achieve that goal of getting back to school. But uh, most of the trail, I would say I was definitely hiking with people. And the last uh, four days, my dad came out and hiked the last from Stahican to the Terminus with me. So that was one of the coolest backpacking moments of my life still to this day. Sounds pretty cool. How how many days did it take you? It took a hundred and I think it was 112 days. Okay. So still really good time. Yeah, not not bad at all. It was definitely a first half of the trail versus second half of the trail kind of thing where a lot of 30-mile days the second half and didn't even consider how fast I was going the first half. What surprised you the most about that first through hike? Um, I think the community. On your first through hike, a lot of people go out thinking it's a walk in nature, and it definitely is, but you know, there's a lot of other people on their walks through nature at the same time. So I mm-hmm. didn't know what to expect in terms of camping with people and meeting all sorts of people along the way too. So I was really surprised to meet lifelong friends and things just happenstance, very different people than myself, but we got along great out there in nature. How many of those people have you found yourself hiking with again or, or crossing paths with again on the different trails that you've done? I haven't hiked with a ton. I've crossed paths with, paths with quite a few. It's been just a random thing. Like in Golden one time, Golden, Colorado, one time at a bar, I just saw someone uh, named Chonesy that I hiked with through the Sierra. And we both recognized each other just so randomly. And then another time, uh, just crossed paths in Wyoming while hiking the Great Western Loop or the calendar year triple crown just meet people randomly again and you pick right back up where you left off because the experiences are you know always there to reminisce over you have you have a bond exactly yeah you've (laughs) you've been through really taxing and difficult things together so that's always there no matter where you go from there yeah when you when you touched that monument and manning what what were your plans from that or after that? Um, I I guess I was just gonna go back to school because that's what I was expected to do, go back to college. I on a through hike you have a lot of time to think. So I'd thought about grand plans and trying all sorts of things in the future, but they were just dreams. They weren't plans or goals or anything yet. So things were in my mind. I just had never pictured really going for anything again. I just knew I was going to go back to school and get a degree and see where life took me from there. Is that what you did? Yep, exactly. I went to school for a couple more years and then graduated. And then the summer after I graduated, I did the Pacific Northwest Trail and then moved to Denver and started working in, in the real world. So when did you come back to doing not that they aren't all serious, but but serious trails like calendar year triple crown and the the fastest known times on some of these trails and what was the last one the Great Western Loop? 
Yeah. So I worked for about a year and a half in my first summer in Colorado. I got outside a lot. I did some backcountry ski racing and I climbed all the Colorado 14ers just on the weekends when I had time. And then I just wanted to do something bigger. And then the opportunity presented itself when the company I was working for went through kind of a split. And instead of going to work for one of the partners that split off, I just decided to quit and go hike the calendar year triple crown. So it was maybe just <laughs> a year and a half. And all I needed was a sliver of opportunity to reinforce the decision to just go for it. You just needed an excuse. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> just some, some way to make it rational in my mind, I think is how I would say it. So when you rationalized doing the calendar, your triple crown, um, I mean, because that's a that's a pretty going from the PCT, waiting a couple years, and then diving straight back straight into the calendar year triple crown. I mean, that's that's going beyond the deep end. Yeah, it was. I bit off more than I could chew for sure. <laughs> but not to not to give away the ending. But you succeeded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I made it. It was. The the Appalachian Trail, so I did it from February to late, early February to late April. And it was, the whole thing was a learning experience. It wasn't really my most enjoyable hiking. It might have been my most memorable hiking in one sense, but it was, it was just so difficult. And I think how I decided on going for the calendar year Triple Crown is while hiking the PCT in 2011, I'd thought, well, I heard of this thing called the Triple Crown where you know, the, you do the PCT, the Appalachian Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail in your lifetime. And I was thinking then it was so hard and so much money for me just to squeeze out one through hike in college that if I was ever going to do it, I'd have to do the Continental Divide Trail and the Appalachian Trail probably in the same year. And then I just thought, well, I wonder if you could do all three in one year. <laughs> and so that that whole thought was there and it just needed to manifest a little bit and really turn into a goal and then and then a plan from there and that's that's how I went for it didn't have any real winter backpacking experience just went out in Colorado a couple weekends when it was snowing and 10 degrees or snow or so and camped in the snow just to figure out my gear and how even walking on snow worked and uh, then I started the Appalachian Trail uh, week two got dumped on by a huge storm in the Smokies where it snowed uh, three feet in some places and it oh, dropped wow. to below zero, well below zero. And that was, so week two was the moment I was wondering what I got myself into. <laughs> Why am I here again? Yeah, exactly. Because that's, I don't know, 200 miles in or something. And mm -hmm. I had, I had like 7,800 miles to go. So starting to question what I was going to do with the future. And so what, what kept you moving forward at that point? I think just not wanting to quit when it was really hard. I wanted to make sure. So when I do something, I'm pretty dead set on finishing or making a decision that I'm going to like in the future. So I didn't want to quit when it was the worst it was going to be. I wanted to push through to make a decision when it was 
more moderate or not as bad at times just because I knew I'd regret it. Just I think when something's really hard and you quit, it's a lot harder to rationalize. Whereas when you push through and you make a decision like that was really hard, I made it through it, but I don't think I, I still don't think I want to do this. I think I had that mentality of just keep going. And then in a day or two, once I get out of the Smokies, lower in elevation, better area that if I want to quit, then I can. And at that point, I definitely didn't want to quit. I just, Quitting was not going to be something I made the decision on in the Smokies when it was that bad. Right. It wasn't going to be an instantaneous decision? No, not at all. And if I did want to, all the roads were closed and had a foot of ice. <laughs> so I didn't even have the ability until I dropped lower in elevation anyways. You weren't going anywhere. No, I, uh, right a little past around Clingman's Dome, I, there's uh, a road um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was closed and there's a bathroom and like a parking lot there. Everything was closed. The road was closed, but I just remember going in the bathroom. I was out of fuel at this point and there was hand sanitizer in the bathroom and just cooked up a meal of probably average mashed potatoes. And just remember how, how happy I was just to have a warm meal and little things like that really improved the situation immensely. Have you found that to be the case kind of through all throughout all of these adventures that um, whether it's a warm meal or, or just something simple is carries you through. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think I really enjoy the, the challenge. And even in the moment when it's really hard, I like pushing through that. So when it's, I've made some, crazy weird videos of when it's just snowing or hailing and really cold on me just smiling and being as happy as I've ever been because it it's super hard and I know I'll push through it and feel so good about it <laughs> I think the challenge is what I really enjoy and and you have definitely uh picked up the gauntlet on that yeah it's it's definitely continued and try to go after bigger and different challenges in every way if I can. I was going to say, it's kind of escalated. Yeah, a bit. I uh, tried the did two long things that were just never ending a relentless push, but really fun and flexible in one way, and then decided to try some faster things as well. So just wanted to stretch my body and my mind in different ways just to see how it would work. And Every even um, finishing that or the PCT or anything, the end or hitting the terminus or whenever the adventure is over, it's always kind of weird because it's so much fun to have those individual experiences and stories that I don't know that I'm like overcome with emotion at the end. It's kind of like, well, it's it's over. I guess I have all these memories I'm taking from it. This was just another moment of the whole adventure and what am I going to do next kind of thing. When you, when you did the calendar, your triple crown, how many people had done it, had finished it before that? Um, four people had done it prior. So I think I was the fifth person to do it. Did you meet anybody else during that year that was also going for it? Yeah. I met one other girl named Speedstick, and she was going for it and she got, about halfway and then um 
life had different plans for her, but yeah, she, she was fun to hike with. We hiked through Boston or, um, Massachusetts, a little bit of New York and then, um, Vermont as well. Yeah. There. It probably, I would expect it would have been nice because you were having to travel pretty damn fast in order to get it all done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was probably nice. I would guess to have somebody who understood the speed at which you needed to move and, and was with you on that. Yeah. And it was also nice in another way. So I'd only done the PCT before, but she had, she was a triple crowner. So I picked her brain brain continually about the continental divide trail and the rest of the AT just to try to get as much knowledge as I could from someone since I'm not a huge planner and just figure it out as I go. So I knew a good resource when I had one and (laughs) she could keep up and we had pretty much the same schedule. So it was good. Nice. You went from the AT to the PCT next? Yeah. So AT AT North, PCT North, and then the CDT South. Okay. And then you said the the AT was February to late April. Yeah, I think 84 days it took. Yeah. Okay. And then the PCT was what, late April, beginning of May through? Yeah, beginning of May through late-ish July, I believe. Jesus. Yeah, mid to late July. <laughs> yeah, that was a 79-day hike, I think. That was fast. Well, I guess it, what, you wouldn't have been there in the in the winter or the, with the heavy snow and stuff, but that's fast. It was, yeah, it was pretty quick. I So, you know, everyone starts out on a through hike and has to get their hiker legs. I just came into it really enjoying a clear trail, good weather, and I had my hiker legs, so I was kind of shot out of the cannon from day one. How many miles were you hiking a day? A lot of the PCT was in the high 30s and sometimes 40s. How was your body holding up? It did well. I had a lot of issues with, it was, I don't know the exact cause, but I had some dizziness in the Sierra and at altitude, and I think it was altitude dehydration and the calorie deficit as well. So that was an issue. And then about 5,000 miles in for the year, I had a lot of tendonitis that I had to deal with for the, through the end of the journey. How did you deal with that? Um, some Advil, ice, <laughs> <laughs> little stretching, but just, I guess, dealing with the pain. <laughs> Grit your teeth and go for it. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're so far into something and that happened in Wyoming, I would say. So I didn't want to quit or anything and just tried to manage it the best I could. So, and then the CDT went from what, like late July through? Late July through October 15th. Yeah. Okay. So did you get, when you hit Colorado, did you get back into snow again and Hit by, get hit by any storms and that kind of thing? Yeah, the whole goal was to make it through Colorado before winter hit, and I was really close. But around Wolf Creek Pass, I got snowed on. It wasn't too bad. It was just maybe four to six inches, so it was manageable. But the hail and the lightning storms were really oh bad. I've never been more scared in my life, actually. Not even when you're charged by a moose or a grizzly or... <laughs> No, I think those 
Well, the moose was funny, but it <laughs> <laughs> just because moose aren't the smartest animals. And um, yeah, the moose in Northern Colorado charged me, dove into the bushes, ran, hid behind a tree and he was looking <laughs> around, looking around for me. And he had the moment where he forgot what he was looking for and then just sauntered back and laid down and I could barely contain my laughter. It was, it was pretty hilarious, but I guess the, I was probably more nervous or scared crossing the Kennebec river, but the lightning just felt so, I I just didn't really know what I was supposed to do since I was on a ridge. It was pretty steep to get off at either side and, and just made the best I could for making it through that without getting hit by lightning. Was the lightning close enough that you could feel the electricity? Yeah, and the whole ground would shake. My ears would ring because it was right overhead. It was, oh wow! It was a lot to deal with. <laughs> so, so what did what was your solution to not getting hit? Yeah, immediately after the storm started, because it was pretty immediate. Just climbed up a ridge, and at, on the top of the ridge, it kind of just started crashing overhead. I ran down the less steep side. I guess that would be to the west and then found this clump of trees where I could just like crouch down in there. It was, you know, 300, 400 feet below the ridge. So I felt safe enough for the moment, but I couldn't set up a tent or anything and I'm getting pelted by hail. So I stayed there for probably 30 or 40 minutes and then it moved, the storm moved not too far, but far enough where it wasn't directly overhead. So I stayed low in the kind of the valley and just wound around the side of the ridge to what was kind of a flat spot, just enough to set up my tent and think I could sleep in that and then weathered the storm there next to just one small tree. But it it was one of those things where I didn't think it would pass and it was probably 4.30 p.m., didn't really know what to do, so I just decided to call it a day in the safest spot I could find before, because I would have had to go back up on the ridge to keep going, and I hadn't had to deal with that before, so I didn't really know what the mm-hmm. proper way to, to deal with an afternoon thunderstorm that was not going to disappear was going to be. How long did it take to dissip- dissipate? It was after dark, so it, it crashed. I have videos well into the night, and then it disappeared in the snow in the morning. It was just snowing. So I could hike through that and it wasn't too scary or anything. It was brutally cold, but I was able to manage. (laughs) How were you? I mean, through hikers are not known for their carrying of winter gear. Like how, how ready were you for that kind of weather? Not very ready. I was very cold. Um, Luckily I had a nice beard at this point with like eight months of growth. (laughs) so that kept me a little warm and then I had gloves but I was putting my other pair of socks on my hands as well and just trying to move as fast as possible to stay as warm as possible too so I was cold definitely (laughs) were you hiking with anybody else at that point or was there anybody else around that you knew of and no I I don't think I'd seen another through hiker for days (laughs) there was yeah it was very that made it so much harder as it was very isolated on my own, had to make decisions just with only my own input with, and no idea what the weather was going to do or what was happening. 
you, I mean, your hikes, particularly once you finish the AT, seem to be very, very solitary. Yeah. So the, the P, yeah, the PCT on the calendar year Triple Crown, mm-hmm. I met tons of people. Well, at least in the first half. And I think in the first three days, I saw over a hundred people. So I saw a lot of people and, and had to get my conversation skills back in order after the solitude of the Appalachian Trail. And then it slowly petered out. And once I got to the Continental Divide Trail that year on the calendar of Triple Crown, heading south, I started meeting people uh, around the Yellowstone area. So for about okay. two or three weeks, I got to hang out with other hikers and camp with them and stuff. Unfortunately, in the middle of this, I had some issues with Giardius. I wasn't the best uh, camping mate, <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was cool to see people. And on the CDT, they're, they're usually finishing their triple crown or something. So it was really yeah. fun to, to camp with them. And they made me do some of the things I missed on the Appalachian Trail as far as traditions, like the half gallon ice cream challenge I did in Ledore, Idaho and things like that. So that was a fun way to be social and break up the hike a little bit from the solitude. What other kind of challenges did you do? Oh, good question. I didn't do too much. Um, what, <laughs> you didn't go too wild and crazy. Yeah. What are some of the other challenges out there? I don't know. You're the experienced through hiker here. <laughs> Man. Yeah. I don't. Hmm. Good question. I don't think I did anything. I didn't really do a 24 hour challenge or anything like that. None of the four state challenge on the AT or none of the drinking challenges, but (laughs) yeah, I guess I didn't do too many other ones, but I got that one in. (laughs) You got that one in Idaho, no less. Yeah. Right. Ledore, Idaho town of like 15 people. (laughs) But apparently, did you just go to the grocery store and get your, your ice cream? Yep. Okay. I think it's, might have been a full gallon too of just chocolate ice cream and the dairy was not great for my stomach for at least a week. <laughs> oh man. Did you have any issues with or have you had any issues with weight loss on these hikes? Yeah, actually the skinniest I've ever been was after my first hike in two thousand eleven where I'm six foot two and got to about hundred and fifty pounds, so I lost a lot then. And then since then I've never lost that much weight so it's never worried me so i guess that was a good baseline to go off of but i definitely will lose weight and get skinny and everything but just knowing that i've been skinnier before has been a good thing to to kind of push off worry or anything like that but how did you change your diet from that first hike because obviously something changed um because you're doing more miles now you're obviously more active in these these later hikes yeah, I for the calendar year Triple Crown, I dehydrated at least half my food, probably three quarters of my food before the hike to mail out, mostly because it was cheaper and also it was nicer to control what I was going to eat. And so this would just be mostly meals like lunch and dinner. And then I would buy stuff for breakfast or snacks along the way. But that was pretty nice just to have. I mean, they weren't great meals, but it was nice to have a box where I could just quickly grab it from the post office, put it in my pack, 
know what was in there and be ready to go. Versus going to the grocery store and having to sort through things and yeah, re- and repackage the, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, the repackaging thing for sure. Yeah, and then I am not great at going to the grocery store. You throw all your, I don't know, let's say uh, chips or something in one bag. I'll eat that whole bag on like day one or day two. And so <laughs> it's a lot nicer to have it prepackaged and know what I'm going to be able to eat each day. So what kind of dehydrated food were you, were you eating or what kind of meals did you, did you create for yourself? Yeah, a lot of couscous, some rice and beans with definitely a lot of hot sauce and seasoning added and spaghetti with uh, protein added to it. Yeah, pretty much three to four meals and just rotated throughout most of it. And I would say I mailed 75% of the mail drops and then bought the other quarter of the time. Wow. Yeah, I mean people are people are generally it seems like going away from moving away from the mail drop thing. Yeah, so on the Great Western Loop 2 years later, I did move away from that quite a bit just cuz No. Oh. I only planned it for 2 weeks so I had no time to dehydrate anything. <laughs> <laughs> you planned for two, Okay, so stepping <laughs> back for a moment yeah, let, we can put a bow on the calendar year triple crown if you want. <laughs> let's let's put a little bow on the calendar year triple crown. Yeah. Which is, okay, so, and you finished in October, you got down there. What was, what was, what's the memory that you take with you or carry with you from that whole experience? Wow. <laughs> That's a big <laughs> question, I know. Yeah, I well I think the lesson it taught me is just persistence and and this whole way of doing things where you have this bigger goal but you have to separate it into micro goals along the way because there's no way anyone could think of an 8000 or it came out to like 7800 mile hike in the aggregate you have to break it down into not only each trail but each resupplier just the smokies or a smaller section or else there's no way to do it. So that whole hike, there was no even looking at the end of each trail. It was more just breaking it down into smaller goals. And that was really important because my first couple through hikes, it was more like just going out there, see what happens. I'll have a good time. This one, I had a concrete goal and I had to break it up into measurable pieces that I could comprehend or else I could not like count down from... 8,000 miles and be successful. That's just not a way that the brain works. So it taught me a lot of just feeling success in small bites compared to if the whole thing. And then I guess a memory is crossing the Kennebec River in Maine. The ferry service that the Appalachian Trail Conservancy pays for was not running. And I stripped naked and swam across it and have never... (laughs) I made it to the other side, but I've never been more worried about my decision to do something. And um, that's still probably the scariest decision I've ever made. It worked out, but I would never like to do that again. So so your takeaway from that is think a little harder before you make a decision like that? Yeah, well, I think it's more like now that's a baseline. I've done something that I don't want to have to do again. So mm-hmm. if it's less than that, I can think about doing it. If it's more intense than that, probably better to not do it. Did you have any tricky stream crossings in on the Pacific Crest Trail or, or was it 
I guess on the calendar year, was it by the time you got there, things had, the streams had kind of come down and. Um, there were some big crossings, nothing. So like way steep and kind of raging. I was able to manage. Okay. But they were definitely on the verge of being out of my comfort zone, just in comparison to crossing a stream in Maine where my feet left the bottom of the river. These felt kind of small, but mm. they were definitely giant. <laughs> so I was in there and I think I left Kennedy Meadows maybe May 20th or something. So it was still, it was hitting peak around then. So they were pretty big okay. and fast, but I was a lot more careful just having the knowledge of not wanting to feel out of control in the water again. So I was willing to go upstream and find better ways to cross. So, so the lesson was learned. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Sir. <laughs> how were you keeping in touch with your family throughout this? And how was your family's worry level in relation to what you were doing? Well, I know my dad worried a lot. He actually had nightmares, he said, leading up to the Kennebec River crossing because he knew it was pretty intense and I didn't know it was so intense. Um, <laughs> but I had a, <laughs> yeah, I had a spot, so I would hit that every night. Okay. And it went out most of the time. So it was one way communication that they knew at least I was doing okay and where I was. And then, you know, maybe a call every week or so or a text or something. But my dad's worry level definitely got pretty high. <laughs> it sounds like it. And were you able to give him any comfort or it just sort of was what it was while you were out there? Well, I downplay a lot of things. So <laughs> I think he knew that it was more intense than I made him try to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not great at either building things up or uh, I kind of just play everything down. So it made me think he wasn't worrying. But lately, I've heard some stories that he was definitely worrying about sections. Does he also tend to do the same thing? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> he's very he's very real. They actually just finished the John Muir Trail. So it was really cool Very to nice. see them go on a hike. So moving on to the Great Western Loop Trail. <laughs> yeah, just the next one. Uh, just the next one. <laughs> okay, what is that? Because this is this is not a trail or a loop that I am familiar with. So what does that entail? Yeah, so basically a loop around the Western U.S. So it includes so it's a circle. So you can start in, in at the same point anywhere on the circle, but it. It includes the Pacific Crest Trail and then turns off onto the Pacific Northwest Trail and then takes another right onto the Continental Divide Trail and takes a right onto the Grand Enchantment Trail and then another right turn onto the Arizona Trail. And then at the Grand Canyon, you turn off and create your own route to connect it back to the Pacific Crest Trail for a full about 7,000 mile loop. <laughs> So, okay, at the Grand Canyon, you take a right, and how did you connect it back up? Yeah, so it, it's going to, that one will actually be a left turn, but yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but no worries. Uh, I had 
So how I did it is I had CalTopo open, which is a online service for creating like a GPX file. And then I had Google Earth and I think I had this app I use on my phone called Motion GPX and was looking at both roads and cross-country places to walk across because this is the true desert, like the Colorado and the, the Sonoran Desert. And I was looking at ways to connect them while also putting in enough water sources to have water, which would mostly include muddy cow ponds that I would hope would still have water in November. So how, yeah, I just drew it. And how I did it is I drew three variations because I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And I figured I could jump between the three of them or figure out what looked best when I actually had eyes on the ground. And so that's how I went for it. And I decided I was going to do this two weeks before I went for it. So I was pretty tight on planning for everything. So I just kind of winged it and went for it and and it ended up working out. <laughs> Thank God you've done the calendar year triple crown before that. Yeah. <laughs> I, All of that experience. Yeah. And more so just drawing on the base like of hiking at the beginning. So it was a lot easier to jump up to 30 mile days from the yeah. start than, than any other hike I'd been on. Did you do any, well, I guess you made the decision two weeks before you did it, but were you doing any sort of hiking training, knowing that you were going to be doing something at least? Um, I thought I might be doing, attempting like an FKT or something. So in February, I went down to Zion. I took a few days off, visited some national parks, but I went down to Zion and did this route called the Trans-Zion route. It's about 50 miles. And I did an out and back of running across it unsupported for 100 miles just to see how my body felt, how it held up, and it went well. So I knew I could do something. I thought it would be a lot shorter, what I did do, but I was in decent shape of just running for a full year. And is that how you usually keep in shape is is running? Yeah. Uh, for everything, I usually, so I'll just run throughout the year. And then when I have a goal or a plan, I'll transition more to hiking or fast packing or whatever it is. So it's, it's more like stay in shape. So you're in shape and then mm -hmm. transition to actually what you're going to do around the time you're going to do it. Got it. Sort of circling back to, to your navigation from the Grand Canyon and, and kind of scrolling through your, your Instagram feed and, and the pictures and stuff like that, that you were commenting on as you were posting them. The the path you took from the Grand Canyon over back over to the Pacific Crest Trail and the, the sort of the navigation that you were doing sounded like you were doing that a lot of the trail. I mean, you 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 posted a lot of notes about choosing a path, following a gully, and then getting to a point where it was blocked, and then having to change or correct or or something like that. Yeah, it was. Um... So even the Grand Enchantment Trail was kind of like that too. So there was probably a good thousand plus miles of that 7,000 miles that were a lot of navigating. Um, and since I hadn't been to any of these places, I was just figuring out as I went. So there, it was one of those things. It was pretty, so I started at the Colorado river down at the border of California and Arizona and hiked 
west to the Pacific Crest Trail. So I started there okay. and it was it was basically just a take your route across the flatlands of the desert with a few hills and then hit Joshua Tree and along the way through that hundred plus miles till you hit Joshua Tree, find water where you hope it's gonna be. I got water from a gas station like an abandoned mobile home place where I was able to get water and then a rest area on interstate 10. I believe it's interstate 10. Yeah. And then, um, and then shot over to Joshua tree where began a 66 mile water carry across the (laughs) national park, which was kind of (laughs) crazy. And this is all in week one. So, (laughs) uh, but just a little one. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, you better hit 30 to 40 miles a day across this flat, sandy expanse, or you're going to run out of water. But it was, I don't know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, I think, because the, I knew the Pacific Crest Trail was about a week away after I started. So I knew once I hit that, I'd already done the PCT twice before, Mm -hmm. and it was going to be like my favorite trail. So I was, I was really motivated just to put in the miles, even if I was sore, just to get there. Cause I just love the PCT. And I knew once I hit that kind of the whole romanticized adventure would start. <laughs> <laughs> the romantic part of it. Well, I mean, you have something in your mind and that's what the PCT yeah. is for me. And I was just really excited to to hit it. And I'm glad I started where I had to work to hit it and not just start on the PCT where you know, get through 200 plus miles of desert, then you get there and, and then you can head north and turn right a few times. And then you figure it out at the tail end of this when you're motivated by finishing. I love it. You just turn right a few times. You'll get there. Yeah, It's it's pretty simple directions. (laughs) (laughs) How did you, when you were in the desert, how did you know where your water sources were going to be so that you could plan to hit certain ones? Yeah, I think I got a little lucky. So the 200 miles to begin it wasn't too bad. I was able to depend on, I was pretty sure there was going to be water where there was water. But from the Grand Canyon to connect back to the Colorado River there, I was a lot more nervous just because it was very remote and there's no Mm -hmm. cities really or anything around. So I really did just have waypoints at cow ponds and stuff. And I didn't know if they, so it's, it's November. So it's gone through the whole dry season and stuff. And I didn't know if those ponds had water. I just figured if they kept cows year round, there would probably be water year round. And luckily it worked out. Okay. And this is all just from looking at satellite images and putting waypoints down. So there definitely was some luck involved, but maybe, (laughs) maybe that's how it always is. I don't know. So you were literally looking at satellite images, determining where cow ponds were, and then marking them essentially for the purposes of of mapping and navigation. Yeah, yeah. Very scientific approach. Very scientific. Had, <laughs> had you done much navigation before that? I'd done a lot in Colorado on okay. bridges and things like that, but nothing in terms of trusting a satellite image like that. So that was a little new. Wow. it's It sort of feels like every new trail that you hit or every new 
goal adventure that you do, you're, you're stacking, um, astronomically on your level of expertise. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. So yeah, we want to go through the progression. So it was kind of the Pacific trail, um, middle college just kind of spur of the moment needed to change something, decided that's what I was going to do, went for it after college, knew I enjoyed through hiking, wanted to try another trail. So I went with a little more rugged with the Pacific Northwest trail. And then after spending a lot of time outdoors in Colorado and working 70 hours a week, I thought it was time to go for something big. So went for the calendar year triple crown. But after that, it it's still in my mind feels like it was three different trails just in one year because of transportation and things between them, how different the trails are. And so I could have, I mean, I'd shown myself that I could (laughs) do something long and hold up and enjoy it. But I think I always wanted to have the longest through hike you kind of could have. And that's how I settled on the great Western loop because it is a loop and you don't need transportation between anything that that's why it really stuck out in my mind that it's like human powered and you walk a 7,000 mile loop. That's pretty awesome. It's like the longest through hike you could probably come up with between seasons and everything. So I really wanted to do that because it was continuous and felt like, I don't know, a cool, cool adventure of just not, not depending on transportation or anything to get to a new trail, just to say I did the calendar year triple crown or something so that was more just what i wanted out of a through hike and got it there how many people had done that before you uh just one other person did they like create the trail (laughs) yeah they created the concept for sure okay so it was andrew skirka and he actually won national geographic adventure of the year for for doing that route oh wow nice (laughs) yeah still Still not very well known, I think, but it's a uh, it's a cool concept. I think linking any number of trails is where things. I mean, beyond the the traditional trails, I think that's where things are kind of going is coming up with your own concept and mm-hmm. making it your own through hike. Which kind of the whole idea behind the Great Western Loop is there's these trails they connect. Why don't we try to connect them? And I think just making a unique adventure is a really cool thing to do. How many days total were you, did it take you for the Great Western Loop Trail? 208 days. So are you working at all at this point? <laughs> so I uh, I worked for a year and a half or so, did the calendar year Triple Crown, and then I worked for another year and a half between them. And because uh, I started that one in April or May, late April. Mm-hmm. So I worked in basically finance for I don't know three years or so total between the the lot in those five years or whatever and uh that's that's how I afforded them if that's the question (laughs) well I guess that's partly the question but like what is it that you do that allows you to take that kind of time off or are you literally between jobs when you do it yeah I went back to one of the portions of the company that split off. So I kind of had the ability to go back to work with the same people after the calendar year triple crown. 
and then uh and then i quit my job for the great western loop and i've been piecing it together having done the great western trail now the great western loop trail at this point what what was your biggest lesson from it and what's your what's your strongest memory of it yeah i think my lesson is i was i just had this like need or urge or desire to go on the longest through hike I could because it really did reset my life in the perfect way in 2011 on my first through hike and just doing bigger things that didn't feel like it's like the calendar year triple crown it mm-hmm. was longer bigger and everything but it didn't feel like it was connected or truly like that I think that's what I got out of the great western loop is it was just this lifestyle that of barely spending any money living very cheaply. I never, I rarely, if ever stay in hotels or anything and just like having this, everything I need on my pack, depending on myself, human powered and everything. It fulfilled the, just the duration of living like that as long as I thought I could. So it was, it was a very personal journey. I mean, no one knows what the great, not a lot of people know what the Great Western yeah. Loop is anyway, so it wasn't obviously for publicity or anything. It was just a, a way to go on this huge route and adventure that was kind of my thing for me. I think that was bigger because the calendar year Triple Crown is blown up. Everyone kind of knows about it now, but that was a very, very good way to just reset and do something that I really wanted to do I think and then biggest memories um getting charged by a grizzly is definitely up there (laughs) (laughs) tell me about it yeah I came around a corner and there was a a mother with two cubs just her head was in the the bushes they're probably huckleberry bushes she pulled her head out looked at me and then just started running at me and I just remembered in slow motion, I reached back and grabbed my bear spray out of the water bottle compartment and pointed it at her. But about 10 to 15 yards away, she stopped and got up on her hind legs and sniffed a couple times, slammed her paws down and, and just stared at me for what felt like ever then turned around and sprinted off with her cubs. But I was shaking, holding the bear spray and I just, remember thinking, I don't even know when I'm supposed to start spraying this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have the correct end pointed at her at least? Yeah, the correct end and the the little safety wedge thing was out too. So I was ready. I just didn't know how close what the range of it is or anything. Yeah. How long did it how long did it take for that adrenaline to process through your system? Well, a quarter mile later, there were some hunters and they had uh, like mules or something that they were packing their stuff in. But I didn't see the hunters and just started talking to the mules and telling them about the grizzly. (laughs) And and then I saw the hunters looking at me, just talking to their animals. And then I just walked quickly down the trail again. So I was was definitely kind of out of my mind for a good 30 or 40 minutes. Even just hearing you tell the story gives me a little bit of an adrenaline rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the head, I'll never forget how big the mama bear's head was just charging at me and all the fat rippling and and then just feeling so helpless. That's like 
I don't know, I'll shoot my bear spray eventually, but I don't have too much control over this situation is what I remember thinking. Yeah. How tall was she when she got on her le- on her hind legs? Oh, definitely taller than me. I have no idea. Felt like it towered over me, but no concept of real height or anything. Wow. So yeah, that was one of the biggest memories. And then other things along the way, just meeting people on especially the PCT and the CDT that I had connections with or had met before. And um, I met one person in uh, Southern Montana that I'd hiked through the Sierras with in 2011. Just having the whole hiking community interwoven with connections and things just from other hikes I'd done was a huge, I don't know, like connection or a really cool way to feel a part of everything. And even though, you know, I wasn't camping with people very often. Yeah. I mean, cause you're moving so fast. It's hard to have continuous connection. Yeah. That was kind of the thing on the calendar year, triple crown and the great Western loop. And it was more miles per day actually on the great Western loop. So, you know, best case you get to see some people and, hang out with an evening or camp with or something. But the next day they don't want to do, you know, 35 or 40 miles or they don't want to do that continually for a few days. So it does make it kind of hard as far as establishing friendships and relationships and connections. Cause all those obviously take time and you don't have too much to time to slow down and things like that. Did you do any or many zeros? I think I did four zeros throughout 208 days. (laughs) So not a lot. Uh, All So three of the four were in the first 700 miles or so, and then just one the last 6,000 miles. (laughs) So were you essentially doing like Nero's and just climbing? Yeah, not not even a lot of Nero's. It was a lot of getting into town and getting out or getting in late, charging stuff up overnight and leaving early in the morning. So that was a big planning thing just to limit time in towns during daylight hours, essentially just to be efficient and, and all of those things. Well, and you were saying on the, on the calendar, your triple crown that you were sending yourself that you had sort of prepackaged stuff. Yeah, and the whole the only bottleneck really in town was how long it took to charge up an external battery and at least on the Appalachian Trail since towns and connections to society happen every couple of days it wasn't too bad just to get an hour charge or something in town and and then head out. But yeah, it was very much like when I felt like I had enough charge to use gut hooks on my phone, I was ready to head out again. Were you feeling the stress of trying to complete it or was it just that you had this timetable in your head and, and you just were moving? I think I don't feel that comfortable in town. So I'm Uh, just a lot happier getting out of them. And I'm, there were a few times I would just hike out of town a mile and watch the sunset at on the AT at like a shelter or something, just because I didn't really want to spend too much time in town. I love getting a, a nice, a, a warm meal or good meal or whatever, and then leaving, but I don't like staying in town too much. So that was always a big motivator is 
think that's kind of why I'm out there and I enjoy doing these too, is I want to spend my time in nature, at least close to it. So that's kind of probably the biggest motivator more than anything. How were things different from that on the great Western loop trail? Did you, I mean, with two weeks to spare, you wouldn't have had time to have done all of that packaging and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I had just basically the same things I would get in every town. Okay. So um, it was pretty efficient to shop and it actually worked out fine. I just didn't have any time. So on the calendar, your triple crown, I'd go into a town, grab my stuff from the post office or plug my external battery in while I grab my stuff, repackage it, grab a meal, and then unplug my stuff and head out of town on this, on the great Western loop, I would plug in my stuff shop so it was just more time on my feet doing things. It didn't feel like it was any slower. I just didn't have as much sitting down time or something. Mm-hmm. I was pretty efficient, I would say. I think that's one of the bigger things, even moving into the the current stuff I've done is just the efficiency has has gotten pretty good just with doing it in a bunch of towns. At this point, it sounds like you've basically, particularly like grocery shopping or what have you, you've you've streamlined exactly what you want, exactly the portions that you need. So it is really in and out. Yeah. I think you're making it sound like more of a science than I do, but it's like, (laughs) "Eh, this sounds good. Throw this in Uh, two bags. Let's go three. Okay. But I do kind of get the same things. It's just kind of, I feel, I guess, intuitive. (laughs) Right. A pinch of that, a dash of this. Exactly. But yeah, mostly like a sleeve of Oreos, a bag of Cheez-Its. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are your go-to snacks at this point? I do a lot of wraps even for snacks. So tortillas, some kind of meat that's not going to spoil being room temperature for a couple days. And then cheese, usually either Parmesan or sharp cheddar or something like that. And then mustard packet, throw that on there. And then the first day or two out of town, I'll have, I'll usually pack two avocados out of town and slice those up and put them on the wrap. And I eat a lot of dates for everyone craves sugar. So I just eat dates and I don't eat too much processed food as far as what I used to eat, I guess. So it's a lot. Most stuff is a wrap. Um, I'll Sometimes I'll take some chips out and then... I guess dates, dried fruit. I've done some frozen burritos recently, (laughs) which are a little questionable, but they work. Frozen. So they're frozen. So like what, a a day later you're, you're eating them because they've thawed. Yep. You buy them frozen and they slowly thaw and you usually have about three days before they get slimy. Yeah. So you got to eat them in three days. Okay. Note to self. Yeah. (laughs) Is there anything that you just you're so sick of that you just will not eat it anymore. Cool. I don't think so. Huh? No, I think, I think I would eat anything. Uh, I ate a lot of on the calendar, your triple crown. I ate a lot of like bean based meals that I dehydrated myself and Mm -hmm. I would be okay. Not eating (laughs) any of those anymore. (laughs) They were pretty bland good calories and stuff, but they needed a lot of hot sauce by the end and I would never willingly eat one. Right. You wouldn't volunteer. 
Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what is what does your kit look like now in terms of like what pack are you carrying? Um, I I use a few different ones. So like brand and size and everything. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I'm not a big gearhead, but I in the past year I've used a Gossamer Gear Kumo. I think it's 36 liters on the Arizona Trail. I used a light AF pack. It's kind of custom made, 35 liters for the long trail. And then I've used, let's see, I used the Gossamer Gear Gorilla 40 on the Great Western Loop. Yeah, I think those are the main packs that I've used. I used a Granite Gear pack, maybe 46 liters on the Appalachian Trail during the calendar year Triple Crown, just because I was carrying a little bit more clothing because it was so cold. Under 40 liters, keep it light, but I like a hip belt with some pockets on it. I was going to ask you, do all of those have hip belts with pockets and that kind of thing on them? Yeah, I just really like to have things. I mean, I guess hip belt is nice, but having the pockets on it where so many more things are accessible is pretty important to me as well as on the gossamer gear packs they have this cross slit so it's diagonal on the back on the mesh pocket and you can reach in it without taking your pack off and so light yeah light light af made a pack where i had them do that as well for the long trail and just being able to reach things without taking your pack off when you're trying to go faster is kind of nice because it doesn't mess up your flow or cause you to have to stop and take your pack off to grab something. I would imagine because you are trying to put in the, the miles and you're trying to go fast, that the more ability you have to say, eat as you're going or, or do things as you are still moving, it's beneficial. Yeah. Just the whole efficiency thing and yep. steady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the system, the system. Exactly. It's very systematic. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about, what are you using for tent and sleeping bag and those kind of things at this point? Yeah, I've used the Gossamer Gear tent, and then now I'm using, I've been using a Six Moon Designs tent some of the time as well. What is, what is the tent? What is the name again? Uh, Six Moon Designs. Six Moon, okay. And then uh, the one piece of gear I've actually used on every big hike since including the calendar year triple crown is my catabatic quilt, which I bet I have more miles on that than anyone has ever put on one of their quilts. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, <clears throat> it's seen more than. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's my favorite piece of gear just cause it works good in the cold and you can, in the hot weather, you can unzip it and just barely use it as a blanket. Are you one of those people that uses the like the egg crate foam sleeping pad or do you do inflatable <laughs> egg crate foam very big figured very uncomfortable i wouldn't recommend it on a traditional through hike but that's what i use <laughs> because of the weight and how fast you need to move or because you've just gotten used to the feel of it yeah i'm gonna We'll just go with because the weight and how easy it is to set up. But yeah, I don't even know if I've tried an inflatable pad in a while. I don't even want to know how much more comfortable they are. Yeah, it's probably better that way. 
Yeah, it'd be too hard to keep using the egg crepe foam, as you call it. What are you using for shoes these days? Right now I'm using Adidas shoes, uh, just trail running shoes. I've okay. I've been through quite a few types of shoes, but my feet are, they don't have a lot of feeling left. So they work in pretty much anything. <laughs> when you say they don't have a lot of feeling left, is that basically the one side effect from all of the hiking that you've been doing? Yeah, I don't know. So there's this thing, I don't know if you've heard of it called like Christmas toes, where your toes don't have feeling after your through hike until about Christmas. And I think <laughs> no, I have that all year long where your toes are not very sensitive. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, no, I had, I, I, I've heard about the sore body and muscles, joints, that kind of thing, but I, I hadn't heard about Christmas toes. Yeah. So yeah, now you're enlightened on. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. Was it a thing that you had after your first through hike or has it been sort of accumulated throughout the years? I definitely had it during the first through hike and it went away, but I would say my feet are not very sensitive anymore, but that's okay. Not a big foot guy. <laughs> Which I guess in one respect is what allows you to do the type of mileage that, you, that you're doing. Yeah. I mean, they, they put up with it and handle it without complaining. So I'm not going to complain either. What? Cause you've got some pretty amazing pictures on your Instagram feed. And, and knowing how much you hike by yourself, I'm assuming that those are all sort of set up and then taken from a, from afar. Yeah, it's mostly using a timer and some of them are going to be a GoPro just controlled by my phone. Okay. Is what, so what are you using for, for camera these days or for taking pictures, I should say? Yeah, just my uh, trusty iPhone 6 and a GoPro or a GoPro. Wow. Most of them are with my iPhone, but yeah. That's that's impressive for the 6. Yeah, and so that's another uh, reason why I've hiked so much is I don't buy a lot of new things. So hence the, <laughs> phone, that, the phone that still works. I'm right there with you. If it still <laughs> works, why am I upgrading? Exactly. Now, I was noticing during, actually, I'm going to ask this question, and then I'm going to get to your your fastest known time things. But uh, so I was noticing on, I think it was during the, tr- the calendar, your triple crown, at least on the later trails, that you were doing the hashtag suicide prevention. Yeah, yep. What What was that about, if you don't mind talking about it? Yeah, I raised, I was kind of tied in to raise money and awareness for well, I wasn't kind of, I was uh, tied in to raise money and awareness for suicide prevention for with that hike since, you know, I had this ability to go hike for nine months. I thought I would try to um, impact some, cause some good in the world. And then I did a few events after that where we raised a lot of money as well. So it was kind of one of those causes that has been near and dear to my heart and wanted to make an impact if I could. Have you, have you kept doing that with the additional hikes that you've done or was that sort of a a one-off with that big hike? Um, I've done some stuff with it. I haven't officially tied them in Mm. a lot because I've just, I wanted to do something with the great Western loop, but in two weeks to plan that, I just never had the time to tie it in. But 
Yeah. So fastest known times. You've gone for a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. How has that gone? Yeah, they've they've all been really good. Learned about myself on on all of them. So this year I I basically made an attempt at four and got three of them. So it went went pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what were the four that you were going for and, and which ones were you successful at? Yeah. What, what, what was your successful time? Wow. So many numbers to remember. <laughs> um, There'll be a test after this. Yeah, man. I went for the Arizona Trail, the Pinhoti Trail, the Long Trail, and then I made an attempt at Nolan's 14, but was not was not my day. It was not a not a good attempt. But okay. uh, learned a lot about. That was actually probably the one I learned the most about. So, how so? Going into it, I wasn't in the right headspace, and this will tie to the Arizona Trail too, actually. But I just wasn't. I wanted to do it, but I wasn't mentally ready to do it. Physically, I felt pretty good, and. Then I, I started it, uh, and then I, I actually have asthma. So I had an asthma attack on the first peak, and it was like, well, I can't quit when it's really rough. So then I did right. another peak. And it, so Nolan's 14 is 14, 14,000 foot peaks linked together through like a hundred mile route through Colorado or in the middle of Colorado and did two peaks, really rough time on the first with asthma didn't love the second one and then was just not in the mental headspace and it was pretty sad to quit that early, but it was, it was a good decision and kind of taught me like you got to really, there's so much more mental preparation for things like this Mm -hmm. than just physical. And on the, so it ties into the Arizona trail in the sense that I was successful at that and it was like 15 and a half days or something, but uh, I was camped. I don't know three or four miles the first place you can camp before the southern ter- terminus that i was going to hike down to it in the morning but all night it was pretty windy i was super stressed kind of had an anxiety panic attack and was just like i cannot start tomorrow i'm not in the right headspace or anything so i just pushed my start day off by one one day and i think that's the whole reason that that FKT or fastest known time was successful. Just being able to recognize that I wasn't ready for it, put it off for one day. And then being, I mean, I'd already gotten all my worry and anxiety out of the way. I slept great, hiked down to the terminus, started the whole thing. And, and I mean, not without adversity, but it went about as well as I could have expected. So it was really important just to be self-aware and know that, it's okay to push it off by one day. No one's going to care. It's more about how you're feeling about this thing. And I mean, that's a hard, I mean, the self-awareness is, is amazing, but it's, it's hard to let yourself change plans like that. Yeah. And I think it's really big in, in this area or this era where things are stated online and people see things and stuff like that or we have this like false sense of letting people down and like really people are probably giving you a tiny amount of even thought or or effort or anything. (laughs) (laughs) I think 
once we get over that and don't worry so much about that, it's a lot easier to just focus on what, what the way to accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish the best for you and the most rewarding way is compared to, you know, I said, I'm going to start this day. I have to start this day. And when I finally let that go and was like, I am not going to start today. I'll just start tomorrow. It was just immediate release of tension and everything and was ready to go. And it worked out great. The weight lifted. Yeah, exactly. Now have all of your fastest known times been unsupported? Um, the Arizona trail was self-supported, which means I resupplied along the way. So it's about 800 miles and every two to three days. So 100 to 150 miles, I would either walk into a town or buy a resort or buy civilization, all human powered to walk in there. But then I would grab a resupply because I mailed all of them, I think, except for one, maybe two to myself, throw that in my pack and keep hiking. So it was all um, human power, but I did mail myself stuff. So self-supported. Okay. So self-supported. And that was in how many, 15 days, how many hours, how many minutes? Or are we getting down to that level? Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's so, these things are all like so much personally for me and pushing myself. I know it was like 15 days, maybe like 12 or 13 hours. I don't know. (laughs) No worries. Yeah, I I remember most like starting end dates of trails, but I'm not a big numbers guy. It's more about the journey. <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> and then the, the next one. Yeah, the Pinoti Trail is, so there was a couple of reasons for doing that. That was actually also self-supported because I resupplied along the way. But it was, it goes through Alabama and Georgia and ends at the Benton Mackay Trail. It's about 350 miles, a little lesser known. But the main reason for doing it wasn't really an FKT. There just wasn't one at the time. So I just submitted it. But it, it was more so because I wanted to do the long trail and had such a bad experience on the East Coast. I wanted to go do a trail that way with some humidity involved, the same type of conditions the long trail would have just to have that experience and also just have a better taste in my mouth about East coast hiking. So that was, I mean, it was a decent time and a good push, but it, it was more so just getting this confidence, I guess, that I was ready to go for the long trail, which was one of the, the big ones I wanted to do this year. And yeah, it goes. So to describe it, it starts at the southernmost, thousand foot mountain in the Appalachian mountain range in Alabama. And then, um, ends at the intersection with the Benton Mackay trail through, uh, basically Northern Alabama and Georgia. That was, that was just a wander in the, in the park for you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I pushed pretty hard, but it was not like there was a, some other time I was trying to beat or something. I Mm -hmm. thought I would just, you know, go go have fun, push hard in the woods. I mean, I could have stayed in the city for a week and probably spent the same amount of money as hiking the trail cost. So it felt like a good way to just go do something. You were training. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the long trail. Yeah, so this was one of the 
the bigger things I wanted to do just because it's really rugged. It's 273 miles across the entire state of Vermont. And um, yeah, super rugged and wanted to do it unsupported. So carry my food and everything except water for the duration. And uh, I, so someone, uh, Josh Perry, set the FKT on it about a month before I did. And so he lowered, lowered the FKT and um, I mean, that was fine. I went into it with this goal, like the FKT was always in the six and a half, six hours or six days, 20 hours or something range. And I just had this idea, like, I think I could probably get it under six days. So um, started out, it's kind of a trail of two halves. So the first half heading south was the most rugged thing I've ever done, pretty much. Just really? there's lat, yeah, there's ladders and stuff. Uh, twenty thousand, oh twenty thousand plus feet of elevation gain and loss each day. It was, it was insane. But uh, yeah, got halfway was kind of behind schedule, so I basically gave up sleep. Had major hallucinations while doing nearly I did one nearly 60 mile day just through the night and just started seeing things all over the place the whole world felt like I was on a pogo stick because it was bouncing just because I was so sleep deprived and it was it was a really I guess rewarding experience in the sense that I'd set my goal at six days and I finished 12 minutes under six days so 12 minutes the power of goal setting right there, I think. Yeah, that is. <laughs> I know. It, now it you makes... know something new about yourself. Exactly. It makes me wonder if I'd set it at an hour higher or an hour lower, would I have beaten that by 12 minutes too? Like, is that how the mind yeah. and the body work? It's a really interesting question. Which poses the question, so what's next for you? <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm wondering. <laughs> I mean, like what, what you want to go long? You want to go short? You want to go fastest known time? Do you want to? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, get another continent. <laughs> yeah. Probably another continent in the future or at least Alaska. And I did just put out a book. So that's one thing that I've been doing, but my biggest goal in the future is to do the Barkley marathons. I think. Is, oh, you know, nice. So I was on the wait list last year. That would be awesome to get in and just go try to suffer with all, <laughs> the, all the other people out there in the middle of Tennessee. So so tell the listeners a little bit about the Barkley Marathon. Yeah, it's this thing. And all right, so back to the beginning. It started when there's a prison right by Frozen Head State Park where the race is. And I can't remember the name of the prisoner, but he escaped and he was gone and escaping and running or whatever for 60 hours. And they found him like eight or nine miles or less than 10 miles from where the prison was. So <laughs> the race creator was like, I could run a hundred miles in, in 60 hours. And thus the idea was born. So he created this race where it's unlike any ultra marathon, but it's kind of a concept. So 
there's five laps and they there's no gps or anything so no one really knows the exact distance people speculate the laps are about 25 miles long or so and as checkpoints along the route there's books and you have a bib number just like any race and if your bib number is 11 you have to tear out page 11 from each of the i think anywhere from 10 to 11 books along the route and then you show them to them once you complete the route which is like maybe 10% on trail and 90% cross country. And then your first lap is done and you can go to your car and use your one or two man crew to resupply or whatever, or get ready for your second lap. And then each lap has a time limit. So the first one you have to be done and start your second lap at 12 hours. So, you know, one fifth of 60. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I think 15 people have finished it out of over a thousand in the past 30 or so years. So it's one of the worst finish rates of any race ever. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. How did I do? Did I describe it well enough? (laughs) You, You did a pretty good job. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, does the race course, does the path change each year or is it pretty consistent? Yeah, there it does change each year. So there's, so it's not like you can have some foreknowledge of it and, and that will make you help her help make you successful. Yeah, exactly. And it's all, it's mostly off trail and it's illegal to go off trail in that state park. So you can't really scout it too much either. <laughs> there's no GPS. You have a map and compass and a Walmart watch or whatever. And you, uh, there, so the map, it's just drawn by the race director and you just have to copy it onto your own piece of paper like a few hours before the race. So it's very, very rugged. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's very improvised. Very. I think that there's a documentary about it either on Netflix or Amazon, or there used to be. Yeah. There's a good one on Amazon called, uh, me yeah i don't remember the name but check it out barkley marathons so so tell me about your your book yeah it's about the calendar year triple crown and just this kind of a, a non-fiction adventure book encompassing a lot of the mental physical and i guess just route challenges along the way a lot of getting into how it was pretty tough to meet people and then have to leave them the next morning after a fun night together and stuff like that, just because our goals are very different. And, you know, just you're like almost going, yeah, just going for two different things, but you're having a great time together kind of thing. And then you have to leave them behind. And then of course, all the, the snow and the learning process of the Appalachian trail, losing my tent and the, Mahusik Notch and just being just so crestfallen and finding it, being just feeling amazing again. Just the highs and lows of hiking, which are huge, even though it's just walking. <laughs> to, for for you to say or to call what you do just walking is pretty hysterical. <laughs> I, I don't know. You're underselling it. <laughs> for just hiking, there. <laughs> Uh, a long walk spoiled, huh? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it's so much more in your 
everything's really hard physically like hiking or wanting to continue hiking when your body hurts and stuff. But I think it is just this whole mental game that when you get out on a trail, you either love it or you hate it, or it's a constant battle or you're accepting of, of how it is that is the most underrated part of through hiking that you don't know until you're actually out there. I know. I, I honestly, so many people that I talk to, you know, get on the first one for the challenge or, you know, whatever. Um, and then it becomes a lifestyle. And, and I am, I admit, slightly afraid of that happening for myself. Um, my plan is to do the, P- the PCT next year. Yeah. And, uh, and I have, I, I do have nervousness about getting to the end of it and going, okay, so where's the next one? And all of my life plans from that point forward, just collapsing. Yeah, I think it's, so that definitely does happen and you see it. <laughs> but I think it's more one of those that you really realize what's important. So when you're out there on the trail and your phone's off or it's on airplane mode and you're just using it for navigation and you're having real conversations with people, you're eating only what you have in your pack. You can't like go to the store. You're just going to camp where you put your tent down. You just feel so much more present and in the moment. And I think if you just look at, it on a bigger scale or zoom out that you don't have to have the through hiking lifestyle to have that. It's just more trying to take being present into your life. And I think so many more people love through hiking now because we are not present and we have these internet relationships and people are posting things for likes and things like that, where, you know, a like only takes half a second, whereas a real conversation leaves a real impact and real people. So I think that's what I love the most about it is you have to be present. And that's the coolest part. Do you feel like that that's the biggest takeaway that you've had from the trails back into real life, normal life? Yeah, I I think you're just there without distraction, either enjoying the moment or not enjoying it or whatever. But you're just there at that point in time, not worrying too much about what's ahead or behind you're in the moment however the moment is literally always in the moment (laughs) i think it's just too easy to let things pass by with distractions and stuff when wi-fi is everywhere and everything like that that it's just really fun especially you know sitting around a campfire with people or something and hearing a life story that's 100 percent different than yours but being the exact same place, the exact same time with basically the same amount of stuff in your pack and similar tent and everything that you're just, you're equals at that moment, despite what experiences and life lessons and the life path you've taken up to that point. I think that's the part that I really enjoy is you might never even cross paths with people like you would on a long trail. You just get to see this whole other side of, of everything just by what people bring to the table and your presence. So you listen. And that is probably, as you say, the best part of it, that having those moments. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's where you, you can become like lifelong friends in a day on a long trail, just because you're both present the whole day. It's a pretty amazing thing. Whereas, you know, 
<laughs> like dating someone, it takes like a month or something <laughs> to really even know what you're feeling, I guess. But it's it's just very different. And the pace of life is slower in one way, but quicker and just how you get to know someone in relationships because you're both talking, you're both active listening. It's it's a very cool way to like take take a step back and, you know, just be there. How difficult is it to keep that when you move back into the real world? Wow, great question. Difficult, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> now you sound like Yoda. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. Um, I would say I struggle with social media. Sometimes I'll just get rid of it all for a month or something because it just feels like such a distraction or, or something. I mean, there is a point. That's why I will jump back on something eventually, but it's just, I don't know. I just see all these distractions and, and when you've been out there where it's just you and you can't complain, it's pretty tough to hear people complain. So just all the little things that you notice about where like you learn to not complain because no one was going to listen to you complain. You got to figure it out. All the little things just are really hard to hear and a tough adjustment, I would say. What What is the title of your book? Yeah, it's called Free Outside. And it can be found on Amazon and all the usual places? Yep, it should be all the usual places. <laughs> Perfect. Now, what is what is your trail name? It's Legend. <laughs> We need to Not tell the, the legend, just legend. Yeah, we need to tell the story because it sounds conceited. So <laughs> I love it. Uh, we were camped outside of Wrightwood on my first Pacific Crest Trail hike in 2011. Some trail names were being thrown around for me, but none had stuck. And like, they, what were they throwing around? Uh, like counselor, psychologist, because I was like 20, but I was really good at listening and helping people figure out their problems. So it was something along those lines. And then we were camped there um, after going into town. And then everyone was like, oh my gosh, why didn't we think to bring out like hot town food, like a pizza or something? And I'm the youngest one in the group and wanting to impress everyone. So I said I would hitch back into town and come back with pizza and beer and steak or whatever. And so I walked to the... I guess, inspiration point in my Crocs, hitched back to town, got a pizza and steak and stuff from the grocery store and hitched back to, I think it's called Grass Valley Visitor Center with pizza, steak and all the other things they could want and showed up with them. And they said it was legendary. So legend stuck. And then just <laughs> going on to do other <laughs> things. Now people think I named myself, but that's okay, I guess. <laughs> Have you basically just kept that name through all of the trails? Yeah, yeah. People knew me on it or knew me from it on the Pacific Crest Trail. So I just have kept it on everything. Well, that, that is pretty legendary. Yeah, I mean, when you're camped and you're close to town, but it's dark, so you can't go into it. And someone comes back with pizza and steak for you. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it is. uh it's pretty dope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and particularly when you're not the person who has to go get it. Yeah, no, that'd be better. I'm waiting for someone to do that for <laughs> me. Oh, is there anything you feel like we uh, 
that we haven't talked about that you feel like we should? Man, I know we've covered covered a lot. Um, I think the one thing is that I'm a big proponent of there's a lot of ways to do a through hike or hike a trail or run a trail or whatever. And I think that it's very cool no matter how you do it. So I'm a big proponent of, you know, like the just because you do it fast, I don't think you're missing out on things. Just because you do it slow, you're not missing out on things. Just because you do it in the off season. And I think that's become a big thing. And especially towards section hikers and things like that. I mean, in my opinion, they get to do the best parts of the trail in all the best seasons. So I think that's even a cooler way probably to hike a trail. So I think that's the the one note I'd love to throw in there. You're You're basically... I know it's almost blasphemous to say, but you're you're basically really saying hike your own hike. Just embrace embrace what it is. Yeah, and you don't have to judge or condone yeah. others' style either. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly, and I think that that is it's so interesting that you say that because of a lot of the people that I talk to or have talked to, they they get caught in the cycles of that. And it's easy yeah. to fall into those cycles. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it is a blessing and cool to have months off or whatever to go hike a trail. But even if someone has a couple weeks off and is choosing that to go hike a trail and interact with through hikers, I think that's just as awesome that that's how they're choosing to spend their time. I'm big on talking to everyone and hear their story because sometimes the section hikers and through hikers and everything, all the people have a story. And I think it's pretty fun to hear all of them, no matter what it is. Do you kind of feel like you're a collector of stories? Yeah, I'm a really good listener. I don't often, I probably sat in a lot of groups and not talked about any of my hiking just because I like to hear other people's stories and, and thoughts on everything. What were you, what did you study in in college? Uh, finance and accounting. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go. You're going for psychology or therapy, right? <laughs> nope, furthest <laughs> from it. <laughs> if people want to follow your continuing adventures or have like follow up questions or something for you, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, uh, so the free outside on Instagram and Twitter. And then freeoutside.com has trip reports on all the FKTs and daily blogs on the Kalanir Triple Crown and the Great Western Loop and link to the book or how you can get a signed book as well. And uh, Facebook, there's a page called Free Outside. So pretty much free outside across the board, either with a the in front of it or not. How did you come up with that name slash title? Well, it kind of felt like after a couple hikes, that's how I felt. So I just was able to let it all go, be present and feel free outside. So domain was available and went for it. <laughs> Grab it and the rest is history. Exactly. Yeah. I think not too much thinking. It wasn't like a master plan or anything from day one. Which I guess goes or follows back into the stay present or be present. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, 
felt like you can let a lot of the stuff that really doesn't matter go when you're outside. So free outside. <laughs> Perfect. I have one more follow-up for you. I had a couple of notes on my little sheet, my cheat sheet for you. Yeah. And and I realized in looking at this that I just wanted to to get your thoughts on a couple of of things that you that you posted or, or a couple of kind of quotes that you posted um on your Instagram feed. One of which was take time to see what's out there because I promise you will be surprised. Yeah, I think that's the whole case of life thing and I think we miss a lot of things especially looking at how others react to things and not looking at what's really out there and in front of us. So it's really big for me to try to just look at all the things around the true interactions we have, as opposed to the ones that are more built on content or followers or things like that. So I think it's pretty big to focus on what's real maybe what's a little less real sort of the as opposed to waiting to see if everybody else likes something or that type of thing just let yourself like it or dislike it but just let yourself be there yeah i think yeah going down that path just you can have your own opinion on anything (laughs) because your opinion is based on how you think it shouldn't be based on what other people are doing or what other people think it's you're completely allowed to think whatever you want. I mean, somewhat do whatever you want and feel however you want. It shouldn't be based on, on what someone else looks at the same thing and sees one thing. You shouldn't have to feel that way. You can decide one place is amazing and someone else can not like it. So I think that's that's, important way to live. Yeah. And that's, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's encouraged by me at least. <laughs> Your stamp of approval. Yeah. Um and the other the other quote that you had which really kind of resonated with me was on on so many on so many levels um is no one can tell you what your passion is, so it's your job to find it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> It's all there. Yeah, um <laughs> Well, so I think we all grow up and you you might have an inkling or things that you're passionate about and you like, but as you move through life, it's pretty easy to give them up for stability or what others think you should do, mm-hmm. kind of what you want to become. And I kind of did that too, but I knew what I wanted to go back to and I knew what made me happy just by happenstance with the PCT in 2011. So I always knew that was there. And so I just made a point to go back to it because I'd found it. And I think that kind of hits on, you know, no one can tell you, no one knows you like, you know, you, so you should, you should listen to yourself ahead of, you know, the populace or anyone else. And I think it's pretty important to get to know yourself before. I don't know. I mean, as well as just everything else, it's, you're going to live with you the, your whole life and no one else will live with you your whole life. Like you live with you. It's, it's good for you to know thyself, to sit in thyself and, and appreciate what, 
what or who that is? Yeah, and I think it's it's a continual process. I don't <laughs> I don't Absolutely. think it's something that you figure out when you're like seven years old. But I think just making a point and setting time aside for yourself is one of the healthiest things you can do, whether it's through meditation or nature or just being alone. I think that's when you really get to see see what you're really about. Yeah. Did you when you made the decision to become almost a full-time hiker, did you have to give yourself permission, so to speak, to follow that path and to take that journey um, as opposed to falling back into the, the more normal path? Okay. So did I have to give myself permission or do you want to just go ahead and ask it? I, I guess I'm kind of reflecting onto you some of the some of the things that I've been pondering in the last couple of years, which is tied in with this, you know, in terms of finding your passion and so forth. But then once you find your passion, even giving yourself permission to follow that passion, you know, whether it takes you on a long hike and it takes you out of the the standard trajectory that that you were expecting. And into, I guess, something that may be a little bit more scary and uncertain. Yeah, I think I, so I had to accept that I was going to do that. And I was going to give up a lot of things as far as I kind of built a life in Denver. So I had to give up some relationships and a great place I was living, career trajectory and stuff like that. So I had to accept that before I could really, even before I could vocalize and say that I wanted to go do the calendar year triple crown especially just I had to I think I had to rationalize in my mind that that's what I wanted to do these were we'll call them consequences but that the pros way outweighed the cons and I was okay with that and I accepted that before I went on that hike and then it wasn't like I ever felt like I was missing things just because I knew unconsciously that was one of the biggest things mentally before doing it is I just made the decision that that's what I wanted to do. I was spending this money on that. I was giving up these opportunities and things in my life, but in my mind it was worth it because everything comes at a cost and that's what I wanted to do. And since then I've for each hike and endeavor and thing like that, I've made similar things that, I think it's been healthy to recognize what I'm giving up before it's given up. So just, you know, it's not like, oh my gosh, I'm not making the same income or level of money or Mm -hmm. don't have a stable relationship or something. But it's like, I gave that up for this, which I'm in my mind and for me vastly outweighs, you know, the opposite or without doing it. So it was a, it isn't like going on a through hike makes everything better. You do give up a lot. You, you give up time, you give up money, give up, you know, sometimes closeness in relationships and things like that. So I think just recognizing that up front really made it a lot easier on that front, but I did make a huge effort to realize what I was giving up and then be okay with it. You had, you had great clarity. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, I think the romanticized view of through hiking or in nature, which probably comes from Instagram, maybe. <laughs> All the beautiful pictures. Yeah, it's it's not like that every day. You You give up a lot in your life to go for that. And if it's based on something that is perfect and like the sound of music singing in nature or something all the time, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> so I think the whatever time you spend just recognizing that everything, you know, you, you only have so much time and how you want to spend your time. And if it's on a through hike, if it's on, I don't know, training for a marathon, if it's on working up the corporate ladder, you just think it's pretty important to just broaden your view for a little bit and know what cost or what you're doing that for and knowing that it's worth it. That made it a lot easier for me to accept, you know, not staying in hotels, living really cheaply and trying to stretch my money as far as it could because it was worth it to the greater adventure or lifestyle and stuff but you know it wasn't it wasn't just mountaintops and rainbows and all this stuff <laughs> along the way as I think we talked about plenty during the interview or lightning storms on ridges yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant thank you so much yeah thanks for thanks for having me and scheduling it pretty quickly that was great yeah no, it it's it's a it's a good thing right now. My my schedule is is pretty open for a little bit of time, so I, I'm trying to get as many of these amazing conversations in as possible while that's available. Yeah, and so you're thinking about the 2020 PCT possibility? Question mark. <laughs> uh, well, what I am it, PCT 2020 definitely. I am I am trying to remove the question mark and put an exclamation point there. Uh, so we're beginning of, for beginning of April, uh, yeah. but, but, but life as life tends to do has thrown some question marks at me, which has forced me to gain greater clarity about yeah. <laughs> the choices and the decisions and what I may be giving up making the the decision to, you know, hike the PCT and um and the the jobs or the opportunities that that I will you know, step away from. Yeah. Um, in, in doing that and in the past week yeah, about uh, past two weeks actually. Uh there have been some things, you know, potentially which is obviously the hobgoblin of of everything. <laughs> coming my way and has forced me to to truly think, you know, okay, if this actually happens, if this job actually exists and 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 happens and goes at the time frame that they think it's going to go, it will essentially run the entire time that that I would be on the PCT. <laughs> how yeah. how committed am I to these things? Yeah. No one can so, tell you that but yourself. So Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 been an interesting conversation with myself. Um, and it's, it is an ongoing conversation, but I, but I feel like I'm, I'm getting to the point, uh, I'm getting to the, the peace side of the conversation with being okay 
without or not taking that opportunity and and being on the PCT instead and knowing that that is an adventure that is an experience that is more much more valuable than a job for 5 months would be in the in the grander scheme of things yeah definitely i mean i think it's two-sided too like yeah it's a lifelong everything kind of really good lessons but you also don't want to be out there and have it kind of ruined or infringed upon by any regret or anything so it's just the whole mentally working through it too to however you end up or whenever you end up out there to be in the best place to enjoy it and get as much out of it and you know just (laughs) love it out there i and i honestly i think that is probably the best way to end this this call it's just yeah. leave it out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's been it's been really good. Time flew by. <laughs> And links for Jeff's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Jeff for sharing his stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. If you have through hiking adventures to share, you know I'd love to hear them. So please email me at hikingthroughpodcast at gmail.com or you can also DM me on Instagram at hikingthroughpodcast. If you're enjoying what we're doing here, We'd also love it if you would find us on your favorite podcast provider and leave a review. I'll see you on the trail.